We returned to John 13 last week after um, a few weeks off, and we looked at uh, failing followers of a faithful Savior, and it was the foot washing ceremony, the teaching on the foot washing, and then the whole thing concluded by essentially Jesus saying, you're not going to be able to do this, you're not going to be really good at this, but that's okay, because even though you're not going to live this out well, Jesus is still true, and Jesus is still on the move. So we talked a lot about our failures and their implications upon uh, the gospel and the work of the gospel. And, of course, we talked about how our failures are not a threat to Jesus, nor a threat to the work of Jesus. If anything, um, they make the greater point that Jesus is still faithful when we are faithless. And it's encouraging. But I did mention in the sermon last week that the way he concludes that section was setting up this passage. It had allusions to something kind of ominous is on the horizon, that there's a betrayal coming, and this week we come to that betrayal. We talked last week about being failures, and we admit that we are all failures, and we talked last week about every, every single disciple, not just Judas, failed Jesus. However, there is a difference between the way Judas failed Jesus and the way all of the others failed Jesus. And as we look at Judas's betrayal, as we look at this unique way of failing Jesus, Judas, I think a lot of us wonder, when we look at the failures of, dis, of the disciples, I think a lot of us wonder, yeah, we're all failures, but am I this failure? Am I the bad failure? Am I the failure that ends in betrayal and death and destruction? Am I the failure that Jesus rejects? In other words, am I the Judas failure out of all the disciples' failures? Well, this week, that's what we're going to explore together. We're going to look at Judas's story. Are you Judas? We're all failures. Are we the Judas kind of failures? Well, let's answer that question. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use this passage to say this. This week, last week was failing followers of the faithful Savior. This week is a false followers of faithful Savior. There are false followers there are wolves in sheep clothing. There are hypocrites. There are apostates. This is a reality. So we need to explore that. And here's what I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, we're going to look at what false followers can do and what false followers cannot do. And we're going to use his story to do this. What can false followers of Jesus Christ do? What is so fascinating about Jude's story is that nobody saw it coming. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. The obvious thing to see here is that Judas was not obvious. Let me remind you that this group of 12 had spent years doing life together with Jesus. Every day, every night, with each other, and still they had no idea of Judas's hypocrisy. 
And then watch this development. John asks Jesus, well, who is it going to be? And then pick it up in verse 26. Jesus answers, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now look at this. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. That, I just think that is so fascinating. Jesus says, it's the, it, it's the one I'm going to give a piece of bread to. Then Jesus gives a piece of bread to Judas. To me, it doesn't get more forthright than that, but they still will not accept it. Now, there is debate as to whether Jesus only said that piece about, I'm going to give a morsel of bread to the, to the betrayer. There's debate about whether he said that to John or to the whole table. Um, and maybe the table didn't hear him. I, I tend to think that that's a stretch. It takes away from the scandal of the passage. It's saying what it says. But regardless, we, we do know that Jesus said to the table, all of them, one of you will betray me. And then he does look at Judas and says, go do what you need to do. How obvious can you get? Apparently not, obviously, not obvious enough. Because it says the disciples didn't know why he was saying these things to Judas. It's as if they literally cannot see or don't want to see, which is precisely the point of the passage. The fearful reality of Judas's story is how amazingly indiscernible is Judas's story. What makes Judas so scary is how indiscernible Judas is. Why couldn't they see it? Well, let's take some time here because this is so important. Let's take some time here to consider some things about Judas that would make it hard for them to see. What can a false follower do? Well, the first thing we know about Judas is that he was devout. We don't know much about his life, but we do know that he left everything to follow Jesus. That was the call to every disciple, leave your family, community, possessions, vocation behind to follow Jesus. And Judas did that. You don't get more religiously devout than leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. And we know from our passage that he was the one entrusted with the money to give the money to the poor and so forth. So we know he was someone who was viewed as trustworthy and honest, who loved to give to the poor. And besides, if Judas had not done the religion thing, if he didn't play the religious game, then it would have been obvious to the disciples when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. If all along he hadn't been playing the Christian game, uh, doing the right things, saying the right things, then Jesus, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, the disciples would have immediately said, well, we all know who that is. But nobody thought it was Judas, which means when it comes to external religion, he had given everyone reason to believe or no reason to believe that it was him. The second thing to note is that Judas was a leader. 
We need to remember that Jesus, his gathering were thousands of followers, but he only chose 12 as his disciples. And Judas was one of those 12, which I think is amazing. And even within those 12, it would seem that Judas had a leadership role because he was the, uh, he was the one entrusted with the money of the community. So within this massive following that Jesus created, Judas was one of the 12 chosen by Jesus. By the way, that is a very important, that's very important to note. A common thought when it comes to leadership in the church is God obviously chose them for that position so said person can't be fake. Because why would Jesus choose them for that position? But we know he chose Judas as a leader. That means that elders, pastors, deacons, Bible study leaders, campus workers. If Jesus would choose Judas for leadership, why would he not allow some of us? So um, he's a leader, and even among the 12, he appears to have a leadership role. Next thing to note is that it wasn't just that Judas was a good leader. He had a good leader. To be more precise, he had a perfect leader. I think nobody is surprised when bad preaching, teaching, discipleship, parenting, and so forth produces false converts. Uh, we, we think of shallow or even heretical churches and preachers, and we say, of course that community is filled with people who claim to be Christians but truly aren't. But we get surprised when someone sits for years under preaching of an anointed, gifted preacher and then proves apostate. We say, how could they listen? How could they sit there and listen to that truth for all those years and not get it? When someone is discipled and trained by a godly man or woman and then abandons the faith, we say, how can that be? When parents who look to us as model parents and then their children reject the faith, we say, how is that possible? Well, Judas had Jesus. And Judas was false. So clearly, it is very possible for someone under the leadership of perfection to be false. It is certainly possible for someone under healthy, good, godly leadership to prove false. The next thing we can say about Judas is that uh, was, he was not just led by Jesus, he was used by Jesus. Judas did some amazing things in the name of Jesus. We know from our passage that he was the one who gave money to the poor. So when people thought of the mercy ministry of Christ and his community, the face of that ministry was Judas. But beyond that, go back through the Gospels. Go back through the Gospel stories. I did this in my preparation. And just imagine Judas a part of it. The one that um, struck me the most during my sermon prep was when Jesus sent his disciples out and gave them authority over demons and power to heal the diseases. Do you think the one exception to that was Judas? It says, it says that the disciples came back rejoicing that the demons submitted to them. But nowhere does it say, you know, but strange thing is it didn't work for Judas. Judas casted out demons. Judas healed the sick. Judas was used by Jesus to accomplish extraordinary things. The final thing I want to note is, is more personal. Judas was a friend. I'm sure 
I'm sure it was Judas' religion, his devotion, his leadership, and all these things that made it hard for the disciples to recognize him. But you know what I think was probably the most difficult part? Judas was their friend. We don't know anything about the friendship of the disciples, but you don't, ha- you, don't, you don't do years of life together, shared experiences, late night conversation, laughter over each other's jokes, countless meals together. You don't do all of this stuff without forging deep friendship. And we know that Judas wasn't the odd man out of that for the very reason that they can't recognize or believe that he's a hypocrite. If Judas was the perpetual jerk of the community, if he was aloof and arrogant and I'm too good for the disciples, if Judas was the one exception to friendship within the community, then I promise when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, the disciples would have immediately said, well, we know who that's going to be. But they don't. And I think that even when Jesus makes it painfully obvious that it was Judas, that Judas is false, they still refuse to believe because Judas was their friend. Judas was devout. Judas was a leader. Judas had a perfect leader. Judas was used by Jesus. And Judas was a friend. Brothers and sisters, that's terrifying. Because what it means is that false followers of Jesus Christ are among us and are not seen. Now, I say that definitively for a reason, okay? Judas' story does not just warn us that there could be hypocrites in our midst. It warns us that we should expect there to be hypocrites in our midst. That is the promise of Jesus, And it has proven true throughout the history of the church. Christian communities should not be surprised by apostasy. They should be expecting it. We should be ever vigilant, ever vigilant for the dreadful reality of wolves and sheep clothing among us. Now, how? How can we be vigilant when clearly it is so hidden? I mean, Judas checked all the boxes, all the normal things that we would look for. So what then are we to look for, both within ourselves and within our community? Well, Judas did everything right, but lacked the one thing, the one thing that is required of a follower of Jesus. Everything I have said thus far are good indicators of religious Devotion. And Judas passed with flying colors. But when you look at the passage, we see Judas pass the religion test and miserably fail the gospel test. And Jesus, as we said last week, came to establish a subversive religion of gospel rather than a conventional religion. Judas will do everything that religion demands of him, but the one thing the gospel demands, Judas will never do even unto his own destruction and suicide. There is nothing religion would ask of him that he will not do, but he will not do the one thing the gospel demands of him, even unto his death. 
We've seen what followers, false followers can do. Let's close by looking now at what false followers cannot do. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now that's true of every disciple except one, the one of whom he's speaking, Judas. We know from the other gospels that it's at this point the terms of betrayal had been agreed upon and the plan was already in motion. He's already met, he's already agreed, and the plan is in motion. Judas knows when he says, one of you betray me, Judas knows, that's me. So the only person who knows who the betrayer is, is the actual betrayer. And yet he says nothing. No confession of sin. No repentance of sin. No, when confronted, no breakdown into tears and saying to his friends and his Lord, you'll never believe what I've done. Guys, I've created a mess. Can you forgive me? Can you help me? Just silence and hiding and pretending. The passage gets even more intense. Verse 26. It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. That's a rebuke, okay? That is a confrontation. The person who takes this piece of bread is my betrayer, and then he holds it out to Judas, his disciple, his friend. Will you take it, or will you repent? It's decision time. Oh, how badly we want Judas to say, I can't take that bread. I won't take that bread. You got me. It's me, but I don't want it to be me. I'm sorry for what I've done. Jesus, have mercy on me. Help me. But continue on. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. That Satan entered him is to be viewed as irreparable hardness. It's over for Judas, in other words. He has been handed over to Satan, and the passage ends with those chilling words, he went out and it was night. This picture of handing Judas over into the darkness of night where there will be no return. But it didn't have to be this way. Listen, please listen to me. I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. I'm a Calvinist. I believe... Providence is fixed by God and used by God. Clearly, Judas's betrayal was the ordained providence of handing over Jesus to be crucified. But I also believe with all of my heart that if at any point Judas confessed and repented, Jesus would have received him. I, don't, I have no idea how that would have worked out in the providence of God. I don't know how that works out. And honestly, I don't need to know. But I know my Savior... And I believe Jesus is in this passage authentically pleading with his friend whom he loves, repent, don't go through with this. But Judas will not repent. He takes the bread, Satan takes him, he walks off into the night, and there is no longer any hope of repentance. 
And that, brothers and sisters, is what false followers cannot do. They cannot repent. They can be religiously devout. They can be fantastic, good leaders, talented leaders. They can have good leadership over them. They can be used by God to do amazing things. They can be our best friends. They cannot and they will not repent in any meaningful way. The indication of a false follower of Jesus Christ is unconfessing, unrepenting, unrelenting hardness of heart. That is, they will do everything religion demands of them, but they will not do the one thing the gospel demands of them. So please listen to me. If you are hiding, if you are deflecting and defending and excusing, if you are calling yourself a sinner in general terms but never in specific terms, if you hear every sermon and apply it to that person instead of yourself, if you're always applying the Bible to other people instead of yourself, if you get angry at rebuke and you run when community gets tough, if you never apologize and you always have an explanation, if you are strong but refuse to be weak, if you parade your goodness but won't admit where you are bad, if you will not relent and you will not repent, then you are in eternal danger. Don't give me your religious resume. It's not better than Judas's. Give instead your contrition. Give your repentance in the name of Jesus and for the sake of your everlasting soul. Give God your repentance before it is too late and you are beyond repentance. And I would say that too, if you, if you do not call yourself a follower, you know, I'm talking to false followers of Jesus. But if you would just say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. Let me clear things up. If you, if, you wanna, if you wanna consider our claims and consider being a follower of Jesus. Um, I am not asking you to enter into this thing and start building a resume. Uh, Judas did that and, and his resume is a lot better than your resume will ever be, okay? So that's not the invitation. The invitation is really simple. Do you have the humility? Do you have the humility right now to say, I am a sinner and I hate my sin, and I repent of my sin, and I need a Savior, and I believe with all my heart that Jesus is that Savior. That is the demand of the gospel. It is not the demand of religion. It's the demand of the gospel. Now, what you'll find, oh, prideful people like me, that it's actually harder to meet that demand than religion's demand. If I said to you, here's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Do this, this, and this. Don't do this, this, and this. You, by your own strength, could do that. The gospel's demand is harder. Humble yourself. Tell the truth about yourself. Say, I can't do it. I need Jesus. Now, to the broken in spirit and contrite in heart. To those of you, if I ask you to confess your sins, you would say, where do I start? To those who may be slow to repent, because we are stubborn and we are prideful, Perhaps ashamed, perhaps scared to repent, 
but nevertheless longed to repent and that the prospects of losing Jesus would immediately repent. To those who need, want, and love Jesus Christ, to those who will authentically sing what we just sang, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, Jesus I come, Jesus I come. To those who would amen our choir's anthem, I will arise and go to Jesus. I want you to listen to me. I'm a pull office here, okay? I want you to listen to me as an ordained minister of Jesus Christ standing in the pulpit upon the authority of his word to tell you this right now as though Jesus Christ himself is saying it to you. You are not Judas. You're not. You are what Judas refused to be, a repentant sinner who needs Jesus, which is all the gospel demands of you. You know what's interesting about our passage? The response of the true followers of Jesus. Judas is silent. They're freaking out. Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and immediately they want to know who it is. They're desperate to know who it is. Peter says to John, who's hanging out with Jesus, like, ask him. Who is it? Do you know why? I think every single one of them feared it could be them. I'm not, I don't just think that. I know that. Matthew's gospel. When Matthew tells the story, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And Matthew said that the disciples were exceedingly sorrowful and began everyone to say to him, Lord, is it I? Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And every one of them starts freaking out. Could it be me? They aren't the one but they are freaking out that they could be the one, which is precisely why they aren't the one. Judas is the one. He knows that he is the one, but will not admit or repent that he is the one, which is precisely why he is the one. And so, as, so ironically, as I began my sermon with perhaps you fear you could be Judas, now I will end my sermon saying, I hope you fear that you could be Judas. If you fear you could be Judas and would repent immediately not to be Judas, it means you are not Judas. Better yet, it means you belong to Jesus. The Jesus who did not stop his betrayer because he loves you. He tells Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly. In other words, let's do this. I'm ready. It's time. I'm ready to die for the people I love. I'm ready to save sinners. But not just any sinners. Sinners who want my salvation. Sinners who admit their sins and long to repent of their sins are sinners that Jesus saves. They are not his betrayer. They are the benefactors of his betrayal. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus for your word that confronts but also encourages. And Lord, um, how can we preach such a sermon of self-examination without, Lord, without asking your Spirit's help to examine our hearts and our community, our friends and our spouses, help them to examine us and and let us know and, and, and tell us, Lord, not where we need to defend and make excuses, but where we need to say we're sorry and repent. 
Lord, give us the true followers of Jesus Christ, repentant sinners. Give us the assurance of salvation in this meal. And may this meal, Lord, confront any unbelievers, any false converts among us. May it open their eyes to their duplicity and falsehood. And may they know it's not too late. Do what Judas could not do and repent. Either way, Lord, bring repentance now through your holy sacrament. For Christ's sake and the good of all of us who are here together, we pray. Amen.